James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Amen. You may be seated. And as you do so, I want to share with folks back looking across the way in uh, online land, I guess you call it, or live, and uh, give you an opportunity to be a part of what we're doing next Sunday. We call it a harvest appeal. And the harvest appeal is basically when we have a special offering called to help the church to make up for large expenses or to do vision work. We did apply for a Renfro uh, fund and it was not given to us, but rather another church in our district. And so we didn't receive that. So if you're wanting to help out the church in its work and mission and you want to be a part of the harvest offering, sharing out of the first fruits and abundance that you've received or if this uh, online or podcast or any way has helped you, then here's how you can do that. You can email me and I can get the information to you or I can give you the mailing address. And the email is jonathan.altoff at yahoo.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N dot A-L-T-H-O-F-F at yahoo.com. If you would like to mail to us, it's Milburn United Methodist Church, 4940 State Route 80 East. It's Arlington, Kentucky, 42021. And if you would like to be a part of the Harvest Sunday, we thank you. It is a uh, first time we've made an appeal like this that I've ever done, and I hope you can be a part of that. It is a part of giving back to the Lord what you've received from Him. So thank you in advance. We as a church are going to be doing that as well next Sunday in a special offering. We're going to bring a heave offering to the Lord next Sunday in a very special way. So if you watch us next Sunday, we'll make sure you get to see that. Alright, now we're going to turn to James one twenty-seven and talking about the pure and undefiled religion before God, our Father. And I want to share with you that there is a difference between religion spirituality and Christianity. And one of those things is that religion basically is for folks who are trying to reorder their own lives by their own efforts. A lot of people do that. They want to live different so they make a code or or a set of obligations, rules, regulations... I had a t-shirt one time, it came from AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, and it said, religion is for people afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for the people who've already been there. Now that's kind of a, a way to say it, that a lot of people are trying to avoid things by living a religious life, but spirituality is where you begin to have an understanding that there's a power greater than yourself. God who is trying to help you live your life and move you away from where your best thinking gets you. Because your best thinking gets you straight into the power of this world, which is not God. And spirituality does that. But there is a difference between all of those ideas of religion and spirituality and Christianity. 
Christianity is not a religion. It is not a spirituality. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the one who we follow, we serve, and learn, and He brings us to our Heavenly Father. That's what His task is. He's always said, I will lift you up and take you to My Father. No one comes to the Father but through Me, He says. A lot of people stop at Jesus, and Jesus says, don't stop here, let's get all the way to the Father. Because that is the one who is our Creator, who loves us, and who gave His Son because He loved us. And the Son is trying to get us back to the Father. And In Christianity, we understand that's a relationship that makes that happen. It's not something you do. It's not something you say. It's the relationship that transforms you from the inside outward. I hope you know that. But if you've been struggling with understanding that, this book of James will really clear it up. I've looked ahead to the end of the book and it's very clear. James is not uh, masking the truth. He doesn't hide from the truth. He says it. And if you look at it, it almost sounds like, James, what are you talking about? And then when you understand what he's talking about, it's very clear to us. He's not saying things that are complicated, but He is saying things we need to hear. Unfortunately, we don't always want to hear these things. So in this passage, He's talking about pure and undefiled religion. And pure and undefiled means holy, uh, untainted by this world. It means that it is the way that God tried to lay it out. And there are a lot of different scriptures that talk about it. But the thing that he's talking about is visiting orphans and widows in their trouble means helping the helpless. Do you know what I mean by that? Helping the helpless? It means Jesus said, help the poor, feed the poor, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, comfort the sick. A lot of people want to afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted instead of comforting the afflicted, excuse me. And we get that backwards. In our walk with Jesus Christ, what we need to remember is that He's asked us to help the helpless and He uses widows and orphans in their struggle. His audience knew what He meant. We have lost His meaning. What are widows and orphans? Oh, we say, well, that's a a woman who doesn't have a husband anymore. And what's an orphan? It's a child that doesn't have parents. No, that is not what that audience believed. A widow was an unpossessed woman. And a child or an orphan was an unpossessed child. It means nobody owned them. Nobody was responsible to them or for them. They were considered property. It's somebody nobody has to care for by the law. That it's not deemed, it's not mandated, 
But God says this is what you do when you love. You take care of the folks who can't fend for themselves and nobody else is. Now we think of a, uh, a widow as a, you know, just a woman who no longer has a husband to love uh, because he's gone on and passed on. But that's not what they mean. Because if a woman is, does not have a husband in that day and time and his brother is around, that person is obligated to care for her and marry her. That means there's no brother of her husband. It means there's no son of her husband to care for her. That means there's no cousin or uncle of that husband to care for her. That means she has nobody to possess her. That's what they saw. But it gets worse. We understand orphans are children who, whose parents either don't want them, disown them, or are no longer alive. But this orphan is a child that nobody possesses. Nobody has any claim to. Which means there's no family. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It isn't just like we see it. They understand that these are people who are no way able to find a home or comfort from anybody that's a relative. There are no living relatives, first cousin and closer, that can care for them. Nobody is obligated. In that day and time, obligation happened. If there was any living relative of a child, no matter how far down the line, was alive, they were obligated to care for that child. So an orphan in that day and time meant something pretty serious. And so they were tremendously helpless. And there was no way out of their situation without someone to help them. They say, well, okay, so now let's read that that way. So pure and undefiled religion is to, and the word visit here is like when someone is sick and you visit them. Not stop by and say, hey, how you doing? It's visiting someone who's sick with the intent to minister unto them and help them until they get well. That's the word visit, okay? So, it's to visit or to be with someone who is not cared for and not obligated to be cared for by anybody who is a woman and children who are not under anybody's obligation to be cared for. Now, why would God like that? Because God's heart is for children and broken people. And you just have to be broken hearted when you see someone who has nobody. Their husband is gone. All their, his family has gone. All her family has gone. And if you don't have compassion on that person, what's wrong with you? And if your compassion isn't such that it moves you to care for them, to work with them and help them and ensure their well-being. What's wrong with us? Right? You can see now why that's a powerful statement. But now let's take this to where Jesus took it. And where the Old Testament Scriptures took it. Because they said, not just the widows and the orphan, but the poor, the broken, the lame, the halt, 
the wounded by the world, the outcast, the derelict, the homeless, all these fit that category according to Scripture. The lawyer tried to justify himself before Jesus when he said, love your neighbors yourself. Who's my neighbor? And it was a story of a, they call it the Good Samaritan, but I call it the one beaten, left by the road dead. That's the one who needed a neighbor. And when he asked who was neighborly, it's the one who had compassion of the one who's left behind by the world. And you read that story, there's a priest or the church walks by and another man walks by and neither one will attend to that person. But a person who's an outcast loved the outcast and the broken. Now let's get this a little closer to home because you may not understand this, but according to Ephesians chapter 2, we are all orphans. Without Jesus Christ, we are, we are as orphans without hope in this world. You and me are orphans according to Scripture without Jesus Christ. Now listen, anybody who does not know Jesus Christ comes under the term orphan because he's not possessed by our Heavenly Father. Any person... So now we get a broader scope and throw of what pure religion is, is that you visit those who don't know Jesus, don't have a relationship with Jesus, and you keep coming to them and working with them until they have a healthy relationship and they're owned by Jesus. Oh, you mean I actually have to do some work here? Absolutely not work if you love God. It's an honor to love someone into the relationship with Jesus Christ. It means He's allowing you to do His work. That's an honor for God to bestow that on you. And we look at it like it's an obligation that we don't want to do. For some reason, but pure and undefiled religion says, I'm in God. And I'll do the work you asked me to do because you've honored me and asked me to do it. I'm honored. Thank you for letting me do holy work when I am one of the orphans. You've included me in your family. And if I can't love someone else into your family, am I grateful for being there at all? Or do I maybe think I'm not? How much of a joy is it to you to know that you're no longer an orphan in Jesus Christ? That's the greatest news you'll ever receive. There is nothing better because that changes your eternity and your life and your hope. Praise God for that. We're no longer orphans in Jesus Christ. But if we don't understand how powerful that is to us, we won't share that with another to find out how powerful it is for them to become one in Christ. I don't know about you, but here is a good way to look at what James is talking about throughout this chapter when he says double-mindedness. 
That you say you believe in Jesus, but you live another way. That you think one way and act another. Because if you truly believe that your relationship with Jesus Christ has transformed you from what you were to who you are, you're now a used to be that kind of person. I've done a 180 and I've gone toward God. And then you've made that transitional turn by God's power pulling you into relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And you have that relationship and you're going toward God and you see someone who doesn't know God and you go, "Uh, sorry for you. Hope you find Jesus someday. I'll pray for you. And they're broken. And you know it. And you say, yeah, I got mine secure. You go find your own. What kind of relationship do you really have with a God of love? It says if you love, say you love God and you're toward God, but you see your brother going the wrong way in need and you do not help him, you do not love God or your brother. That's what the Scripture says. And we find reasons to justify, we talked about it in the sermon justifiability, to say I don't have to. And excuse our behavior for not loving as God called us to. It's a no wonder James preached this sermon. But here's the real neat thing about this, because it's all cohesive in this first chapter. We talked about every good and perfect gift comes from God. It's a relationship with God that's a gift. It comes from God. You can't make the other person have that gift. You can't even give it to them. But you can certainly be like a person telling someone else who's hungry where the bread is. Where to find the food and the hope in their brokenness. Where to find a father who knows how to be a father. We've had enough examples and bad examples in this world of bad fathers. Our Heavenly Father is a good, good Father. A loving, holy, righteous, gentle Father. And Scripture says His mercy endures forever. Most of this world doesn't believe that about God. They believe His anger endures forever. So, visiting in their trouble. You know, there's always going to be others who have trouble that you're going to come across. But wouldn't it be awesome for your prayer life to manufacture or reflect or introspect something like this? God, you know, sometimes I, 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 I ask You to take care of me and my family. And, and I forget that I'd actually like to have a little extra so I can help someone else. So God, if You'll bless me with enough to help another, I'll do that. But remind me, God, when I do that, that You give me just enough for what they need. And if I help them, Heavenly Father, You'll give me just enough to help the next one. That You'll do that because You see I'm faithful with your resources to love people as you give me ability. I used to pray, God, give me enough and then a little bit more. I don't pray like that anymore. I say, God, give me enough to bless others. I want to bless others. And bless as many as I'm allowed to, Heavenly Father. 
I want to be able to take everything, if I could, and bless others with it. That's what my prayer should be. God, that everything You give me, I could bless people around me with. And all I'm doing every day is looking around for people I can bless in the name of Jesus Christ. That would be the greatest thing in my life where I wouldn't have to work for it, but I could just go out and bless. And yet we think that blessing is always monetary when we pray like that. The fact of the matter is the greatest blessing you can ever give someone is to love them where they are and show them a better way. Not tell them, not force them, just show them. That's the greatest love you can offer someone is show them. And that means you have to live it and give it. That is difficult because we forget that every good gift is not from with us when we give the gift. God gives to us that we might give to others. And He's only asking, you know, like 10% is a tithe and the rest is an offering. But wouldn't it be awesome to be able to give of all your time and resources to love? The fact that matters you can doesn't have to be monetary all the time. Love is expressed in many ways. Did you know a smile or a hug or an act of raking leaves or kindness or other acts of service or spending time with someone are simple acts as giving gifts and show love in the same heart? Did you know that? Five different love languages and they all speak love in the same manner. And only one has to do with giving a gift. It's true. Greatest gift you can give someone is act of service because it means you're spending your time and your energy on them. And a lot of people say, well, I don't really care if someone does something nice for me. What I want them to do is speak a word of encouragement to me. I need someone to lift me up when I'm down. We all need those things. We tend to make love and giving financial in our day and time because our society is focused on it. Oh, you don't think so? It was October and the Christmas stuff was going up in Walmart. October, we have to clear out the Halloween stuff because they got to get the Christmas stuff in. That's what the guy in the aisle said. We have to get the Halloween stuff out of here today so we can put the Christmas stuff right here because that's where we make our money. You understand that? Giving Christmas and the stores make their money that way, right? I understand how this society values things, but God sees things differently. And that's why the rest of this verse is an and. It's an and. It takes the double-mindedness off of everything and helps us to realize. And it says, and, to keep yourself unspotted from the world. The word is consecrate. Now, consecrate is a fancy way of saying give yourself to God. 
Here's what people sometimes miss in the walk of faith. God is not asking you to walk in perfection. Did you know that? He's not saying, do everything right. Look it over and see if you're doing it wrong or not. Oh, no, you didn't do it right. Oh, yeah, try it again. That's not what God's doing. He's not taking a tally marker out. Okay, two things right, one thing wrong. Oh, start over. Ask forgiveness, start over. That's not how God works. Perfection does not prove salvation. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of strong believers out there who mess up a lot. And a lot of them get crucified for it if they're in the public media. Stuff that you and I would do every day, they get crucified for because they're in public figures. It's sad. But perfection does not prove salvation and imperfection does not prove not salvation. True. Rather, it's knowing and learning and bringing our imperfections to God for His help and power to correct them in us. That's how you move towards salvation. You present yourself to God over and over again and say, God, here I am. I'm broken. I'm an orphan. Of course I'm going to act like one. I was never raised in your family, in your kingdom. I was raised on this earth by the people of this earth who don't understand who you are, how you are. Things on this earth are made to break. If you don't ask me or how I know, I will tell you anyway. Because my arm hurts. It's made to break. I am not able to lift up 400 pounds with four fingers. Did you know that? I didn't know that until last week Saturday. I know it now. And now I can't even lift up more than five pounds. Things are made to break. They're not going to last. We see things fall apart all the time. We make mistakes. It doesn't condemn us. It shows us we need to keep coming back to God and say, God, here I am. I'm broken. I'm living like an orphan in Your world like You said I was. And I need your help. Change me. Grow me. I keep turning away from you. Turn me back to the light. Keep tur- if, if you see imperfection in yourself, it's because you're not looking at the light of God. You're looking at yourself again. You don't need to look at yourself. You need to look at God. You can look at yourself all you want, but you're not going to see God there. You're not going to see the peace and harmony of God in you until you look at God where it's found. The gifts come from the giver of gifts. The Father of lights. It comes to us from Him. James is so logical, it's almost like that sounds too easy. But let me ask you a very simple question. What in this world that the world has touched has it not perverted? You can't say love in this world and it not come across incorrectly. You can't share affection with someone without wondering if someone else is looking at it and wondering what you're doing. Because the world is perverted and given motives of evil and wickedness even to the righteous. The world has perverted everything. And us as former, shall we say, non-followers of Jesus Christ, in that we agreed and we walked in it. Scripture says, 
the times past we walked in perversion and idolatry and maliciousness and wicked ways and we leave the time past for those behaviors and move on to the newer things in Jesus. But I look at this world and and we talk about Christmas, right? Our society has so polluted it, watered it down, that it's almost like, oh look, there's animals and there's a baby. Oh, that's so sweet. I wonder what that's all about. Well, that's what Santa's for. (laughs) What? Our world has tainted Christmas to profit from it for its own purposes, not God's. And getting back to that is taking the true star of Christmas and putting Him back as the main event. But I can think of all sorts of things. Um, relationships. They fall apart because the world is tainted and destroyed. Perceptions and how to get along. We never learned how. And we, we seem to think at a young age, we're really good at it, and then when we get married, we go, I don't even know how to relate properly. Because I saw bad examples, or examples that weren't even relevant for my situation now. I'll give you a story. I don't know why this story popped in my head a few days ago, but it's a great story. I was talking to my parents one day, uh, when they were still alive, and I said, you know, and this this is the level of maturity I was at. It wasn't it wasn't too long ago, about twenty five years ago. I was sitting in their living room, and I said, "You know, I don't even know how to ask someone I'm in a relationship if they washed my socks or not without sounding angry and disappointed and frustrated." And and my dad, in his wisdom, said, "Well, what are your options?" I'd say. Well, hey, where's my socks? Have you washed them yet? He said, well, you know, that's not going to work. And I said, uh, um, I can just kind of just wait. He said, does that work? And I said, no. He said, you can ask her to wash them. And he, well, what if she has? You know, and so finally he said, watch this. Mom's out in the kitchen. He yells out, hey, lady, where's my dang socks? And laughed. And she goes, right in your dressing drawer, honey. He was happy. You can say the most crazy things out of love. And they come across right. But what if he had been angry and said that? Right? Because my dad was chuckling and laughing and, and he... He knew that I didn't know how to do that. And I said, how do you know how to do that, Dad? He said, well, I've been married to this woman 50 years. I ought to know something. Right? I ought to know something by 50 years of marriage. And I said, but how did you know how to do that? Because if I'd have said that, I'd have gotten a face full of anger. And he said, it's because you don't understand how to relate. A simple statement is crucial in your mind. And to me, it's just socks. It's not worth the relationship. It's just socks. I don't care if she has them washed or not. I like to hear about her. 
The socks aren't above her. And I've learned proper perspective because God loves me and I love her. And she is loved through me and she knows that. And I thought, wow. Hope I learned that one day. My wife's going, I hope he does too. <laughs> amen. Preach it, brother. That, that's that, that amen over there is my wife. <laughs> and every other man's wife in the place, hope my husband's listening to him so he doesn't keep doing what the preacher's been doing. And the guy's going, see, the preacher does it, honey, so should I. Don't use me as your bad example, guys, to do the wrong thing. Okay? Don't do that. You see, when we are undefiled and unspotted from the world, we don't use the world's motivations to do what we're trying to do or to justify them. The world can't tell us because the world didn't create the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. It can't tell us how to live it out. It's going to say, well, there's poor people everywhere. You'll never feed them all. That's what the world says. You know what we say? We give over 2,000 boxes of food a year through our food pantry and we believe it makes a difference. And we won't stop loving people where they are. We believe that it makes a difference. And maybe it doesn't make a difference to people overseas, but it does to those people who now have several days worth of food every week without cost. And they get to hear that they're loved. Do you understand love speaks volumes in a world that doesn't know how to speak it? And there are some people who come and say, well, I'm going to take advantage of them. And that's alright, because we're not loving out of protection. We're loving because we love the way God asked us to. So how do you keep yourself <laughs> unsoiled when you've already been there? Jesus bought you, redeemed you as a soiled, broken person. And it's simply to consecrate yourself. Now you say, what do I mean by that? Let me say it this way. When you're forgiven and the atonement is made, the slate is clean. You say, but, I, but I'm still not quite sure how to live this life. Because what you forget is not only are you forgiven, but you're called into a relationship that transforms the dynamic of how you think. That you can't be double-minded anymore. You have to understand there's a part of you that understands the world's way is really good. And that's going to destroy your relationships. And there's a part of you, of your mind, that when Christ is in there, is trying to renew you. To transform you. To restore you to the glory of God in you. And so you have to consecrate, not yourself, as in, I'm going to consecrate me, but you present your body, your life, your will, your entire self, as a sacrifice to God. That's consecration. And when you do that, you say, God, this is yours. Use it for your purposes. I am yours. A lot of folks don't understand what that means. They say, what does that look like from day to day? I'm glad you thought that because I have the second part of consecration is way of life consecrated. And this is the one that 
hasn't been talked about a lot. Way of life refers to it what in the first century Christians, including the disciples after Jesus died, what was called the way. Do you know the way? That's what they called Christianity back then. The way. They didn't call it Christians. They didn't call it church. They called it the way. And the way meant, do you know, the way. The way to live differently because of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus in you making you live differently? Now, let me say, uh, okay, so it's a, it's a something you do. No, it's not. It's something that does you. The Holy Spirit within you transforms you. You will understand a little more when you hear what I mean by the giftings of the Holy Spirit. And part of those giftings are things that help you grow along the way. For example, maybe someone came up to you at just the right time and said, I'm praying for you. Or maybe someone came and visited you when you were sick at just the right time. And you said, I don't know how that happened, but that must be God. This is how the way enters into your life. Also, someone may come up to you and say, you know, it looks like you're struggling. I've been praying like God has told me that maybe you have some financial difficulties or you're having some physical difficulties and they begin to pray with you. That is someone walking in the way. And they've given you what's called a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge if it's about God and His purposes for you. And sometimes someone will pray for you and you won't hurt anymore. Whether in your heart, your mind, your soul, your body. And someone's given you the gift of healing. They've walked in the way. When that happens, you now believe that God can use other people just like you to heal you, to restore you, to encourage you, and you want to be able to do the same for others. Scripture is very clear. You have a gift like that. When you operate in that gift, when you know what it is, or when the Holy Spirit's working in you, and you operate in that, you're walking in the way. It's when the gifts and graces that God has given you that are supernatural or active in you or active toward you from another that you are in the way. Do you know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. So that's Jesus manifesting Himself to you in those moments. There have been a few times here on Sunday mornings recently where we've had closing prayers and the Lord just came upon me and I prayed for things. We broke off curses off this church. We asked for restoration and freedom. Those were words of wisdom or knowledge from God. I call them prophetic words where God has put it on my heart to do those things so that this church could move forward in its mission and purpose. Because you can't go forward chained to a rock. You can only go forward built on a rock. And so when that happens in your life, you become a part of the way. And you can now minister to others with the same ministry given unto you 
by God for another. I got to tell you this. Is, I've been kind of hesitant to tell you this, but I got a confession. I'm not omnipresent. Did you know that? Omnipresent means being everywhere at the same time. I'm not omnipresent. I just want you to know that. In some churches, they think the pastor should be everywhere at every given moment. Why wouldn't he here? Why wouldn't he there? Why wouldn't he there? You know, omnipresent thinks he can be, right? I'm not omnipresent. But there are enough people in this church to be present and to minister to others with the gifts God's given you that this church can be present in many ways. My task is to help you learn how to do that and to be willing to let those good gifts flow through you from the Father to those around you. Part of the revival this week is going to show you how that works. That's why I'm excited about it. So, coming back to James one more time. He says on this double-mindedness, it simply means don't have idols in your life. I'm going to share in the most simplest terms I can because I don't know any other way to do this. That if we are truly walking with Jesus Christ, we're looking for God's opportunities around us to minister. We're asking God to make us aware of where He wants us to operate in His presence and Spirit. We're looking for those opportunities. If we love God, we want Him known to others because we know He's the only one who can transform lives. I had a dream, not last night, but the night before, Friday night. I, uh, I dreamt I was here and our church was starting to fill up and, and, the, and I was praying and I was weeping as I was praying and the louder I prayed and the harder I wept, more people came. And I kept praying and I, and I, and I got a sense of urgency and I kept saying, God, right now, you change lives right now, right now, right now, in this place, right now. Bring those people in that are out there right now. And I was watching people walking up to the church. Right now, God, draw them in here. And I saw a family start to walk away and I said, God, stop, stop the enemy from winning. And right now, turn that family around. And I didn't get to see what happened at the end of that dream because I woke up. And I woke up in tears saying, Oh, did they make it? Did they make it? Did they get in? Did they come or did they keep walking away from you, God? Because right now is all we got. We don't have tomorrow. We have right now. That's all we'll ever have is right now. We don't have yesterday. We don't have tomorrow. We have right now. That's what's called eternity in the present. Right now is always right now. We can't do it someday. We can only do it this day. This moment. So, my prayer right now and going forward is that right now we would be tentative to the needs of the people around us and asking God to use us in greater and greater messages and through His message and through His peace and through His promise to reach the community and region and our families for Him. Through us, God can do it. Without us, He can't because we're His hands and feet. And if our hands and feet are tied because we're afraid or we listen to the world saying we can't or we don't know how or we're the wrong size, we don't have enough, 
then the world is perverting you. God said, I have enough of everything. I own it all. What part of all don't we understand? I love you completely. What part of that do we miss? Go and make disciples. What part of that do we justify not doing? It is double-mindedness to not listen to God and let our excuses and the world's justifications say it's okay. It's not okay. God has called us to be His people in truth and in spirit and in love. And it's all the same thing. It's God who's love. His Son is truth. And He's spirit. That is Christianity. That's not religion. And it's definitely not spirituality. Because this is bigger than any one of us. But every one of us is a part of it. Either you're an orphan or you're a part of it. That's that's the only way I know how to say that. Either you're orphan and unpossessed or you're a part of it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, in my life I've seen supernatural activity. I've seen you act in supernatural ways through stuff that I didn't even know that you were going to have me do and watched you work some miraculous things. I don't even understand how you did it, but you did it. And you used a, a broken former orphan to do it. And if you're going to honor this person that way, I know you'll honor others just as much, if not more. For Heavenly Father... I know there's not one here that can say I am worthy because of myself. We all come under condemnation without Jesus Christ. But in Him, we can live and we can move and we can have our being. And Heavenly Father, I ask that right now, in this place, we will be consecrated. Amen. As we get ready to close, I've asked us to sing Amazing Grace. What a powerful song. And truly, if this song speaks to your heart, you know what grace is all about. But here's what I want to say as we get ready. To be unspotted means the world does not dictate your choices any longer. You're guided by a power named Jesus Christ resting inside of you. And your life should reflect the Holy Spirit's activity in supernatural ways. Your life should... I'm going to say this again. Your life should reflect supernatural activity through the Holy Spirit in you regularly. On a regular basis, more and more frequently. And if it's not, I'm going to ask you today to say, God, use me in ways that your supernatural power comes through me that I can transform others through. First time it happened. This is... Funny, because I didn't understand it. Uh, first time it happened to me, I was calling on this guy who was an unbeliever in the hospital. His sister asked me to go see him. He was getting ready to have surgery. He was a teacher. Um, and he was in, uh, I think he was in Baptist Hospital, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I went to see him. And it's been 30 years ago now, something like that, 25 years ago. 
and I, and I'm I'm in there, and he's talking about his surgery and his sister. And I said, uh, you know, I, I, I'm her pastor and all this. I'm telling him some of who I am, and and he tells me some of his situation. He's going to have his major surgery in the morning, and I said, okay, and and I said, all right. I'm getting ready to leave, and I said, would you mind if I pray with you? I'll never forget his response. He said, whatever blows your skirt up, dude. This guy is 58 years old, and the time I'm in my 30s. He said, whatever blows your skirt up, dude. If you think it'll work, you go ahead and pray. I don't know it's going to work because I don't believe in that junk, but you go ahead. If it makes you happy, you pray for me. I went, all right. So I, so I prayed with him. In the middle of that prayer, I heard God say, He's afraid. So uh, I, that's all. Uh, that's what I heard. He's afraid. And I prayed the prayer. God be with him through the surgery. Let him know you're actually real. Things like that, right? And I'm getting ready after the prayer. He says, thanks for coming by. Cordial. And uh, I think I made a joke about my skirt. I'm not sure. But then I'm starting to leave the room. I open the door. Stepping out. The Lord says, He's afraid. And I've got this argument starting in my head. Oh, I know, God, you told me when we're praying. I'm trying to make myself leave. He's afraid. I said, I know, God, I know. I know. Tell him! And I'm going, well, he already knows he's afraid. You know, that's a, and this is supernatural. It's how it works. It's not major, you know, part to Red Sea stuff, right? And there I am getting a, a whisper from God, a word to give him. And so I turn around and I shut the door and I walk over to his bed and I say, you might think I'm nuts. Matter of fact, I might be. But this never happened to me before. But while we were praying, I heard something from God. And he looked at me like, you're telling me what I don't believe in that you heard from just talked to you. And his look was, this better be good. This better be good. And I looked and said, God said, He knows you're afraid. He never said it. Never said it in the whole conversation. Just this hard wall, you know. That's why I said that sarcastic comment to me, right? And he said, God told me He knows you're afraid. He wants you to know that. I wasn't going to tell you that because I thought you'd think God's nuts because you don't believe in God. But He wants you to know that He knows you're afraid and He's going to be with you. And He starts crying. I'm going, oh, jeez, what did I do? Did I make it mad? I thought he was going to shoot me or something because he was crying so hard. Like, and he goes, really? But I don't believe in him. And I don't trust him. And I don't love him. And I, never, and I said I never would. He said, apparently that doesn't make a difference in his book. What matters is that he loves you and he wants you to know you're afraid. And he's going to be with you. He said, would you pray with me again? And I did. This time I cried. And I prayed. The next day he had the surgery. I saw him. He said, thank you. You've restored my hope. And I said, no. My flesh resisted it. Because the world told me that wasn't God talking to me. Or through me. Because I didn't think I was usable. That's what I'm talking about with supernatural. 
And as we sing Amazing Grace, if the grace has touched you, you know supernatural. Because it changed you to a lost, to a found, a blind, to a sight. Shall we stand as we sing?